0: Hello and welcome to In the Envelope, an awards podcast. I am your host, Jack Smart, awards editor at Backstage. I'm here to give you a front row seat to the industry's most exciting awards races. Who is in the running? What makes awards-worthy film and television? How can you, listener, win a statue of your own? We're sitting down with actors to get that insider's perspective on these questions and more. And maybe, just maybe, we'll get a tantalizing glimpse in the envelope.
1: When I was a younger actor, I always thought, if I achieve this, if I get that award, that I will be happy. And I'm here to say that it will not give you lasting happiness. Welcome to the world. Nothing here will give you lasting happiness. you got to find that another way.
0: That was James Franco, Jamie.
2: It was. James was just here. He was in this very seat that I'm sat in right now. That's <laughs> true. There's still some residual warmth <laughs> to it.
0: <laughs> yeah, what a trip. I really didn't know what to expect, which I don't think anyone who's going to interview him really knows what to expect. No,
2: he's something of an enigma, really, isn't he? But he was, yes. he, he was, in a way, what I expected, mm. you know, from someone which was what? intense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, committed. Committed, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And there was there was a real depth to uh, smart, him as a person. Basically. Yeah, very smart, very quick-witted.
0: Yeah. This is a man who, in addition to being a, an actor in a, an unusually large variety of projects, is yeah. also a writer, novelist, poet, a director of film, TV, everything, commercials, um, and a painter and a teacher. And just- Oh, makes so, me sick. I know. Well, it, <laughs> it, it, he's kind of done everything. And that was actually- became sort of the main thesis of our interview was like how to balance as an artist breadth versus depth
2: yeah and you were telling me that just in the one year he had films coming out as diverse as milk mm. and pineapple express Milk and
0: Pineapple, i believe they did come out yeah the same year and
2: which is hilarious it
0: is hilarious they're so different but i do remember that being a thing of like wow this is a I mean, he was remarkable in both in two completely Mm. different movies, and I do think before that time, most people knew him. Yeah, maybe from Freaks and Geeks, which is where he met Judd Apatow and Seth Rogen and all of his kind of longtime collaborators. Yeah. But also from like the Spider-Man movies, and someone who, frankly, looks like James Franco, people are going to cast him and expect him to be the leading man. Yeah. To be like the movie star Mm. and to do the kind of boring. I don't want to say boring, but the kind of leading roles.
2: Yeah, the expected.
0: Yeah, and he has proven time and again that the only thing you can expect from him is is the unexpected.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, he, you know, clearly he will have known that. So that yeah. that direction would have been kind of an easy choice. But when you're mm. in that position, bucking expectations becomes your thing, and then yeah. you can redirect every. Yeah, every year. and
0: the disaster artist, I think, is. The culmination of that—it's like mm. that—it's like the James Franco hypothesis to the nth degree. It's yeah. like this is how to subvert expectation of of being unexpected, of like how to pull the rug under everyone in a way. Yeah, the Disaster Artist is totally extraordinary, and as we talked about in the interview, it is the backstageiest movie of the. Year. It <laughs> yeah, is very meta. <laughs> working actors. It is the la la land of this year. Yeah. In fact. Um, and yeah, it's really fun. He's also starring in two roles and as a producer and as a director on HBO's The Deuce. Yeah. Which is a totally extraordinary uh, s- uh, series set in the 70s. Mm. Um, and of course, it's just strange that that for James Franco is a light plate <laughs> to have those both going on right now.
2: Your <laughs> intro into this, in- this interview is going to be yes. extremely long. You do have to yeah. string two How- songs together. How
0: do I? Yeah, you're going to have to play the longest. I don't know how to do this. I'm going to have to, I literally have this long list of, it's Freaks and Geeks, Spider-Man, Express, Milk, uh, Pilots License for a Role, I have written. <laughs> that. Uh, this is the end, the interview, Yale Literature PhD, of Mice and Men on Broadway, which we sort of touched on too. Yeah, That's just the beginning. So I don't know. I don't so
2: know. just do the rest for the intro. I'll just do what he's doing now, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: maybe that. He's just done everything. Everyone
2: knows who James Franco is. Exactly. And
0: yeah, it's been. It was really fun having him in the yeah, studio. Yeah, it was. It was.
2: Uh, well, I think we should probably get to it. Let's get we? to
0: it. I'm going to take a whack at this intro.
2: This episode is sponsored by A24, presenting The Disaster Artist. In theaters everywhere, December 8th.
0: James Franco is an actor, writer, director, producer, painter, teacher, and all around artist, known for playing a variety of roles and taking on a variety of projects. Everything from his early days on Judd Apatow's Freaks and Geeks, to his Oscar nominated role in 127 Hours, to his Golden Globe winning performance as James Dean. Last year, he starred in Hulu's 112263, and this year on HBO's The Deuce. He currently stars in The Disaster Artist, a film he directed, about Tommy Wiseau and the creation of the notoriously bad film The Room. For more, just look at his IMDb page, he's been in everything. Here it is, our interview with James Franco. You're based mostly in LA, is that right?
1: Um, I'm half and half, because we do The Deuce here. Oh yeah, yeah. It's about half half the year.
0: Yeah, cool. Um, and The Deuce, are you filming a season two soon, or?
1: We'll start in March.
0: March, okay, cool. Yeah. It's a great show. <laughs> Thank you. The detail on that show is just insane.
1: So good, and um, I'm so lucky. I get everything I have. I mean, everything I could want, I have a, yeah. you know. Credible showrunners, right. the best writing on television. The
0: writing.
1: I get to direct. I get mm-hmm. to play two parts <laughs> that are very like, different.
0: Is that the dream to play not one but two parts in like a prestige project?
1: I guess for if you're an ego maniac No, I mean <laughs> no, and, and it's not just that. I mean, it's more like um, when I play, you know, um, like a leading role, right? Mm-hmm. Like, generally speaking they have to carry the emotional sort of arc of the thing. Yes. And so um, oftentimes I can remember being, like, in the lead role thinking, oh, man, look at that supporting role. Look, at, You get to do this crazy character or something, or even, yeah. like, um, in The Fighter. I remember Christian Bale's mm. speech at one of the awards things was, like, thinking to Mark Wahlberg, you know, I get to do the show, showy role and, mm. you know, and and... Wahlberg is more of the quote unquote leading role and mm-hmm. um, and then when you're sort of the supporting part sometimes you think, well, you know I get to Kai, I come in and I give you know one or two funny lines right. and then I'm off and then the, and the <laughs> leads get to you know do all the traumatic stuff right And here I get to do both you yeah know I mean? and so yeah
0: cool because sometimes the supporting character doesn't have a full arc right. Is it your job as playing a role like that? Do you have to find one? You don't want to make. Yes, it all I mean it's
1: always it's always the job, and 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 you know what I was saying before, like um, like Frankie, you know the the more kind of crazier outgoing mm. of the twins. Mm-hmm. Um, he he doesn't really consider things, you know, like Vincent does, but the, but. You know, with Frankie, I, I uh, you still, I always, regardless of the role, regardless of hero or villain, supporting or lead, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm, I always look for some sort of emotional grounding for the character that mm-hmm. um, I find something that the character wants, mm-hmm. or you know. Someone that he is attracted to, or you know, something to really um, make him real. And in life, you know, we're much more, we're very complicated. There are many, you know, facets to our personalities and our inner lives. I, I've I've found that in in movies or in TV shows that. Usually if you can just find one solid thing
0: mm-hmm.
1: that will guide the character. For certainly for a movie that's, you know,
0: one two one hour.
1: hours, you yeah. know. But um even on the show, it's like mm. maybe for the season, you know, each character has one main thing. And mm. and certainly for you know, for the for the whole series, there's probably just an overarching thing. Like what is what is driving this character? Yeah. What, you know, and, and um and that applies whether it's drama or comedy. I mean, I think that's I mean, I, I think it's one of the things that made something like Pineapple Express like yeah, I was gonna say. more than just a a stoner comedy. Yeah. Is that totally. um it it's a bromance, a you know? Yeah. It's it's uh, Saul, my character, totally. like is lonely. He wants he yeah. needs a friend. He yeah. needs that. And and that um otherwise Otherwise, it's just, um, and that, and that's that's actually really something I think that Judd Apatow, hmm. um, at least for our age, really reestablished that, um, and the idea of the bromance, you know, that hmm. um, that it's based in relationships, and and, and otherwise the characters sure. are just sort of floating, and they're just sort of um, machines to deliver jokes.
0: Right. Well, and it feels like Pineapple Express and several. Judd Apatow movies that you've worked on, you guys are following that rule of like, play comedy as seriously as you can. Or rather, being in that yeah. character in Pineapple Express, yeah. you yeah. completely believe as that character, yeah. you completely believe everything that he wants. Yeah, and you're not you're not being like yuck yeah. Yeah, it's
1: a you know it's a it's a pretty charactery character, but um, <laughs> but just like the, my character in the Disaster Artist, um, but it's. Um, Underneath that unusual surface level, uh, there are real human emotion. I make sure there's real human emotions that mm-hmm. people can relate to.
0: Yeah, it almost—it's almost like that's the secret to a to a good deep c- comedy. Is um, it's allegedly about one thing? It's allegedly about like <laughs> these goofy laughs and like Tommy Wiseau, what a goofball. Yeah. But what that movie is actually about is like the the pursuit of. Something bigger. Yeah. Sort of like the American Dream or like yes. Hollywood of like
1: Yeah, Jason Mansukis, who has a little part in the movie, mm-hmm. was describing it the other night after the premiere that uh it's like the American dream with this guy who From insists that he's an American, but he's like, Yeah. <laughs> no obviously not. Yeah, but no. then that's almost kind of a ama- me, you know, like you know one of the amazing things in the book is you know mm. um like tommy wiseau is wrapped in mystery he you know enigma wrapped in a mystery and whatever mm-hmm. that um and you can go and you know people go online and have opinions about uh, or theories about how old he is or where he's from and all that. <laughs> and you probably can easily uh, uh, guess that you know he's not really from New Orleans, but and not all American guy. He sound like this, but um,
0: yeah. And where his money comes from and all, all
1: that. And the money and how old he is, you know, he's probably in his late 40s when he made The Room and he, he said he was in his 20s. And, you know, he still is, like, reluctant to fly, I hear, because he doesn't mm. want to have to show his real ID. I don't, I don't know. But, you know, it becomes – what becomes more interesting to me than just um, figuring out the quote-unquote truth is the character, you know, his – character that he's created his this version of himself that he has uh really manufactured and um to me that's fascinating and the -hmm. the reasons underneath and what you what you were saying a a second ago about the American dream or this um uh one of the Jarecki brothers the the directors Mm -hmm. um you know the jinx and uh -hmm. you know and they do other documentaries and and uh, anyway, one of them was saying to me after watching the movies, like oh this you know it's it's so interesting because on one level it shows like how we you know it really examines how we all try to fill the void with mm. you know success mm-hmm. or you know and and I and I certainly can relate to that whether I was conscious of it or not that sure. you know I early on when I got into acting, I worked really really hard at it and I think in the back of my mind I thought, you know, if I achieve this, if I work with this person, if I get that award, you know, Mm. that um, I'll be happy. Mm. And then, you know, 20 years later, um, I've achieved a lot of the things that I thought I wanted. And, yeah, you know, I'm very grateful, but I I realized that ultimately, you know, it it didn't fill the hole because I was still (laughs) like... Working just as hard, and it was yeah. like, where am I racing to, you mm-hmm. know? Sure. And realized, oh, I'm like running. You're, I'm just running. You
0: specifically are, yes.
1: Yeah. You run. Me. Oh, me? I do? Yeah, you're very busy. Oh, I see. It's putting yes. it mildly to say I've you're stopped. very busy. I mean, I've, I've stopped. you slowed. I yeah. don't think, yeah. I mean, yeah. this year I only acted um, for two weeks this whole year on a Coen Brothers Project. Oh, cool. Um, Western. But, uh,
0: oh, this calendar year. Yeah. that's great.
1: Yeah, yeah. I only work two weeks. Excellent. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but this is in addition to the poetry and the painting and the teaching. No, know? I haven't
1: done any of that this oh, year. Oh, really? Oh no, no teaching. Good for you. No poetry.
0: So I was reading all this, <laughs> all these profiles of you like a couple years ago, just being like, yeah. Well, he doesn't really sleep. Like nobody really knows how he does it. And like,
1: <laughs> no, I'm getting more sleep these days. That's although good. last night, um, my brother took took me and the the writers out to dinner at Uh Uncle Boon's. Oh, okay. (laughs) So I'm a little tired. But, uh, (laughs) um, no, and so, but on the other hand, um, you know, Tommy, I think, it talks about in the book, like, you know, they were really smart, Tom Bissell and Greg Sister, in writing these early sections of Tommy's life that, they kind of keep it vague. And they're like, Mm -hmm. imagine a boy. They don't say like, Uh, you know, it's a nonfiction book. But in those sections, they they kind of still wrap it in mystery. And and Mm. they're like, imagine this boy in an Eastern Bloc country um, seeing American movies for the first time Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and longing to escape his environment and to go to America. And then um, I think what happened is he started to equate that escape to America mm-hmm. with making it in the movies that they kind <laughs> of became synonymous. Mm. And if you also also in the book is a really interesting um, section. and we kind of we kind of touch on it a little bit. You know, Tommy does hit a low point, but mm. in the book, Greg goes into more detail about Tommy leaving these messages um, at a certain point before the room. Mm-hmm. um where Tommy was maybe even suicidal and mm-hmm. at least very depressed mm-hmm. and then and he was he was not in LA at that time and then the next time Greg saw him he showed up with this full script of the room oh, okay. and huh. um and in the room you know anybody that knows the room at the end um the character kills himself you know Tommy casts himself as Johnny <laughs> the all-American guy who's right. just a great guy and <laughs> Has a girlfriend and good life and friends all around, (laughs) you know, and then he's um, betrayed by mm -hmm. you know his girlfriend and his best friend, the both, both people that are closest to him, and then he commits suicide at the end Mm -hmm. of the movie. And when I think about that and think about how Tommy was actually very depressed before making the film, sure, and that in fact he channeled that depression into this into the movie yeah. to me that's incredibly moving and yeah. that the room in that light becomes this very personal document of yeah. Tommy's uh feelings about life and how he's totally maybe been betrayed we even talk about it in our movie about how you know, the, the characters in our movie are questioning, like, what does this thing mean? What are right. we making? Who did, you know, he gets betrayed by his girlfriend right. in that. Did did somebody betray him in real life? And one of the characters, June Raphael's character, says, well, I think that's the universe that, you know. Oh, and, yeah. and so in that way, it's the room can be read as as Tommy's very earnest expression mm. of how he feels that nobody has helped him that he's been let down mm. again and again and again yeah
0: yeah and um and that does explain why he really wanted to do it all himself and fund it all himself but it also Well because that was the only
1: way like yeah. I wrote you yeah. know I wrote a um review uh, in vice a long 4 years ago when I first read the book mm. and I and I said look I respect Tommy because How many thousands or millions of people, you know, dreamed about going into the movie industry? Totally. And it's a really hard industry. And, you know, um, and Tommy did it. He made his movie, you know, and that's, you know, amazing. He he willed that into being. Yeah. But I believe movies work best as a collaborative medium. And there he was on Mm. the set, finally, of his own movie, and he didn't know how to shut off. You know, all he knew was I can only depend on myself yeah. and maybe my friend Greg. Yeah. Because everybody else in my life has told me, no, you're in love to right. make it. He didn't know how to shut that off and listen to other people with more experience once he finally mm. got his movie in motion. right? And so mm. he created this. <laughs> he made a lot of mistakes that maybe could have been yeah. avoided. On the other hand... What the normal kind of trajectory for that story is, is that he made something, it wasn't what he intended. Mm-hmm. What he, you know, what he intended, is, you know, uh is clear from what he wrote on the original poster, a Tennessee Williams-level drama, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what he intended. He didn't make that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Normally, what happens then is, okay, uh I I realized that maybe I made some mistakes. Next time I go at it, I'll try to correct those mistakes. Uh But then instead, the room became this weird, ironic success because people had fun laughing at it. And Tommy jumped on that train and kind of weirdly took credit for making it Uh a comedy. Right. And so he... Mm. Never learned, and he no. never, you know. So, but he also, I think, I think it might be very hard for him to ever repeat the room because right. when he made it, he put his heart and soul into it, hmm. and um, and now he has taken on the persona of the Tommy that he thinks everyone wants him to be the wacky, kind of funny Tommy. Yeah. And so, if he makes anything from that position, it it won't have the same heart that the room has. Right. Which I think is its secret ingredient. Like I yeah. there are plenty of bad movies that people will never watch again. Right. People have been watching the room for 14 and a half years mm-hmm. and I think a lot of that is due to
0: there is people's whether
1: they're conscious of it or not people sense how hard he's trying. Yeah. how much of himself he's putting in there.
0: Yeah, you can see that completely. I mean the the thing the funny thing is like we're backstage and Disaster Artist is by far the most backstagiest movie of the year yeah. in terms of, like, yeah. like, last year, La La Land was the same thing. Of like, well, I used
1: to, yeah, we were shooting, we were filming um, when La La Land was um, mm. coming out, yeah. and we, I, I remember saying it was, like, the upside down of La La <laughs> totally.
0: Land. Totally, <laughs> totally, totally. Two
1: people with a dream in Hollywood. With the Hollywood dream. <laughs> yeah. It's the
0: exact same thing. And ours is even more kind of...
1: Hopeful and romantic than La La Land because our, yeah. our guys stay together.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, and it, there's it's the backstage readers and backstage users and those who are going to those cattle calls and, and trying to get those agents. Yes. These movies resonate. Well,
1: yes, exactly. So this is for you, backstage exactly. readers. This movie is for you because, <laughs> you know, when we were shooting, or even when I first read it, one of the things that really appealed to me is that, yes un, you know it's an incredibly bizarre story and that that appealed There's to me a very very right. unique character right. but underneath it is every actor's journey totally you know, every every person that wants to break into the film business starts yeah. on the outside you know yeah. and has to kind of break into this hard business and so
0: and some discover you got to make your own work in order to get anything done true you can't sit by the phone
1: true that's that's actually a People, you know, when I do Q&As, you know, with um, younger people, um, Mm -hmm. often they say, well, how do you, what do you recommend, you know, to get in? I was going to ask the same thing. And... I I say, you know, in this, this day and age, like when technology is so much more available mm-hmm. and um, user friendly and that there are so many more channels of distribution. I mean, if you just think about the old days, like you had to, mm. you know. Shoot on film, and like I remember Scorsese saying, like, well, I just you know, we went to film school just to get our hands on the camera on the film, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. And like nowadays, you can film stuff on your phone, yeah. and like, you know, um, uh, one of the, the best movies of the year is um, the Florida Project, yeah. and you know, in totally. his movie before that was Tangerine, shot on an iPhone, like, you know, that you can do that. So, I always say, look, you can you know, follow. Follow the traditional path mm. if you want of yeah. you know uh, auditioning right. or you know getting an agent and that kind of stuff. But at the same time, just make your own stuff and yeah. keep making it and putting it out there. Because and when when I taught, I it was the same. My classes were really designed in this way where we were making things and then um, putting them out into the world. Yeah, because. That's how you learn the most is Definitely. having other eyes on it. Or even like um, Tarantino's acceptance speech when he won the second Oscar for the script of um, uh, 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 Django. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, remember he said, thank you to all the people that uh, listened to the script or read the script. Mm-hmm. Didn't get, And he, he's like, didn't necessarily give me feedback or notes, but just listened. And mm. to me, I was like, "Oh, hmm. that sounds like Steinbeck too." Because Steinbeck, he used to read his stuff aloud, and he wouldn't want feedback. But just having wow. an audience automatically makes wow. you see your work in a a different way. Okay, and and that's sort of where Tommy's trajectory went. You know, both was a, a ironic success and an ironic tragedy. Mm. You know that he is a success. People are getting something from his movie, and he even told me like the other day. Like I called the Tommy Truthful Day because it was two days ago in L.A. We were doing some press together, and he was just so frank with me, unlike really? any any time before. And wow. um and he was like, you know what? I have to admit, like. uh the room isn't exactly how I intended it to be, but you know I get react from- reaction from people, so you know that's something that's all you can also all, all that's all you can hope for in the end you know and um and so to me, wow. sort of like, wow, he put his thing out there, yeah, yeah. He put it... He kept it in. He was the distributor. He paid for it. He paid for it to oh, be in theaters yeah. for two weeks to qualify for the Oscars. <laughs> yes. It didn't get nominated <laughs> anything. It <laughs> did not. Um, but, um, but then, because it caught on this whole other way, Accidental he then maybe. followed that path. And so now he makes things yeah. and tries to be funny, but it's not, it's not like no, the room. No,
0: there's no Hollywood story like it. Yeah. There's no, First of all, no one... It's going to spend what was it upwards of six million, eight million on yeah, this $6 movie, million over $6 which then did turn a profit, apparently. Uh, well,
1: if you think about um, it's a miracle the fact that he's main. I think he's his own main distributor. Yeah, and he told me just a couple days ago on Honest <laughs> Tommy Day that um it's in a hundred, it's in a hundred cities right now. Right now. Now maybe that's being helped because the disaster mm-hmm. artist is coming mm-hmm. out, but still, yeah. It's st- remained in theaters for 14 and a half years once a month, and he's raking in most of that profit. Right, because it's all him. He has probably made a profit. Although, wow. on the other hand, Greg <laughs> has told me, Greg Sistero, who knows Tommy better than anyone, like, right. I don't know, he's like, I don't know. Tommy, like, reinvests his money in very weird things, like his underwear and all oh, those, okay. you know, things. And I don't know how, yeah. how many... Uh, underwear, kind of things that he un-
0: unloads yeah. on people. So, so approaching this character, it sounds like there are two kind of levels to it. Where, like, obviously, there's the lighter comedic, the bizarre qualities of him that like hook you in, and you're like, yes. oh, "Of course, I would love to play that." Well, yes. But then there's this other layer of like, he's a tragic figure. Well, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's that's what I look. His own mystery. Exactly.
1: That's what I look for as a director, mm. and I always look for. Like, I've made a lot of indie movies, and mm-hmm. you know, and. um, you know, I'm very I'm very proud of them, but, like, Cormac McCarthy, you know, movie adaptation of Child of God about a necrophiliac running around the woods, yeah. you know. It's, I knew going <laughs> in it wasn't going to have that much box office potential. But, right, right. Um, but I still always, always looked for something unusual. I had a unu- very unusual yes. story there. Yes. But how to... How to at least try to bring audiences in, mm. and and that's what I've done with all my projects. I do want people to to watch it. Mm. Um, I'm not making it, you know, to to just play in a closet. Right. So like, um,
0: you want to make something artistic but also commercial.
1: Yeah, and that's sort of the mandate. From you know, I have a new company with my brother. It's it's like yes. we are always looking for things that push the envelope a little bit or unusual in some way, whether it's mm. the subject matter or who we're working with or, mm-hmm. you know, how it's being done. But on the other hand, we want to, you know, make things that are interesting and entertaining to audiences. Right. Um, it's sort of the Danny Boyle model in a way. Like, if you look at something like 127 mm. Hours, mm-hmm. he knew he wanted to make a movie about a guy stuck in a single place. Even before he got the Aaron Ralston story, he... Mm. Oh. He was interested in this project about a guy chained to a radiator, and the whole movie would have been that. So he had in his mind that he wanted to do sort of a a guy trapped right. kind of story. But Danny is a, an, an entertainer. And so then yeah. the challenge was how do I take that story and make mm. it dynamic and entertaining? Right. And, and, um, cool. and that's sort of what we do. And so here I had exactly that. For I sure. could see it. I yeah. felt the hairs on my neck go up because it was like – all right, this is a Hollywood story, but it's unlike any ho- other Hollywood story. So that's a plus. But it's but there's a way to do it so that it's, you know, uh, will move people, that they Absolutely. will be able to relate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He won't, you know, he's strange, but underneath, he's like everybody. You yeah. know, and I said at the end of my review in Vice, Tommy Wiseau, c'est moi, because I can relate.
0: Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And you did that. You did the. You did the Hollywood thing. Your trajectory is a little different. No one's. has got the same Trajectory to him. Yeah. Did you? <laughs> yeah. What other survival jobs I did mean, you have?
1: That was it. <laughs> Just
0: McDonald's. I Oh le- well, yeah. Before I, Freaks and Geeks.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. I, mean, yeah. I okay. didn't do Freaks and Geeks and go to McDonald's. <laughs> that, <laughs> the, I, that would have been the Andy Kaufman move. But uh, no, <laughs> right. I uh, going to work at uh, Jerry's Deli after he was on Taxi. But um, I. Uh, I was at UCLA and then I dropped out. And my parents said, "You have to get a job mm-hmm. uh, because we won't support you if you don't go to university." And I, I couldn't get any waiter jobs because I was like this eighteen-year-old that just like hardly bathed. And I, you know, I just, <laughs> you know, and all the other actors had the good waiter jobs. And and somebody said, "Well, you're too good to work at McDonald's." I said, uh, "No, I really no. want to be an actor, so I'll <laughs> go and work at McDonald's." And then. Uh, And it's a good lesson. You know, I I tell that's one of the other things I tell people. Um, Look, when you're trying to do, you know, you're trying to follow a creative dream. Mm. There's some weird mystical, you know, kind of magic that happens Mm. when you take responsibility for yourself.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. Suddenly, it becomes much more real you know and it, that's when it became very real for me oh i'm working at mcdonald's at the drive through from 9 p.m. to 2 a.m. oh that made me work that much harder at acting it's like yeah. okay i'm doing this you know i'm not sort of half-assing it's like yeah. i left ucla and i'm at the drive through i better <laughs> prove it you know that i really want this right. and and it and it, interesting if you gotten it a woke day me job up. That... and it,
0: it, it makes it
1: changes something in you too Mm -hmm. there's something different about you know the energy that you're putting out if you're just sort of like trying to cheat or you're cheating on your credit cards or getting and going to debt or whatever Mm -hmm. like there's something about you I think that just radiates a certain kind of um, non-seriousness and Mm -hmm. that when you are taking responsibility for yourself Mm -hmm. I'm not saying automatically you're gonna make it I mean I worked at McDonald's two or three months and I got a uh pizza commercial and then i i could support myself as an actor from that point on Mm -hmm. i'm not necessarily saying that's gonna happen to everybody but it does change you and it does make you take what you're doing much more seriously totally
0: Totally. and you didn't have a did you have like a backup plan do you have a plan b or was it always had to be acting
1: um i had a lot of interest i got into you know when i was in high school i got into art after i started stopped getting in trouble like, I, yes. I, I got in a lot of trouble, and a lot of that was really running, or more running. Like, that was fear, again, a fear mm. of failure and, mm. fe- you know, fear of putting myself out there and not making it, you know. And I think, mm. and again, ultimately, that's one of the things I think that draws people to the room is yeah. they like, we like to watch somebody put them. it's almost like a horror show that, Mm. Where we see Tommy throwing himself so hard into it and, and just failing so spectacularly. <laughs> it's almost like, uh, I think, didn't somebody say it was like some philosopher was talking about like breaking down comedy and like the idea of somebody else slipping on a banana peel mm-hmm. was funny to us because it's not us. Yeah.
0: Totally. You know,
1: we're not falling that's almost the room you know in a way it's like yeah oh that's not us we're not putting ourselves out there and feeling like that yeah Yeah. i feel better about myself i think that's one of the things that appeals about Mm. the room you know sadly and not so sadly i mean that's and i think that's also brave of tommy you know Mm -hmm. i think it's amazing and i and i really respect him you know putting himself out there that's the thing
0: like i think about that Like i can speak from personal experience of just like the fear of failure is very very real and you can't see the consequences sometimes of of putting yourself out there for the sake of putting yourself out there and like getting people to listen to your work and to read your work. Yeah, And you, and it's almost easier to just be like, well, I'm just creating this for me or I'm not gonna share it or... And that creates that kind of more insular, just less risky thing that's not gonna create something like...
1: <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> the room is not maybe the best example, but like right. something like
1: that. And so, yeah, so in high school, I was getting in all kinds of trouble and I was just fantasize, fantasize about movies, mm-hmm. fantasize about being, you know, a great writer, fantasize about being a great artist. Mm. But I wasn't actually applying myself to no. it. I was just running and fantasizing and mm-hmm. and imagining that I'd be like plucked right. out of like my juvenile delinquency into some, you know, position of great, you know, of course. artistry. And was,
0: what was the pivot? What was the turning point? Was it McDonald's? I got in enough
1: trouble. No, no, I'm talking about in high school. Okay. I got in enough trouble that it was like, all right, wake up, dude. It's a rock bottom. Yeah. Get out of there, yeah. and uh, and that's when I started getting into all the artistic things mm-hmm. I was interested in. Um, but hmm. when I left UCLA, I was a literature major at, at USC, UCLA, and um, just threw myself in acting. And it was sort of for like ten years. It was like all or nothing with mm-hmm. acting. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: as it should be for actors, for working actors, right?
1: Well. <clears throat> You know, we were talking about um, how I do a lot of things, or I, I did them until recently, and part of that was learned behavior from those early days as an actor. Um, working at McDonald's, it was like I better, I better bust my ass, mm-hmm. and then I got results. I got that commercial, mm-hmm. and then I got some other things, and then not long after that, you know, maybe a year or two, I I was on Freaks and Geeks,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and. And so that sort of, I thought, well, there we go. You've really, yeah. you work hard at something, you throw your, give it your all, you throw, you know, work at it 24 yeah. Yeah. seven. You don't sleep, you live and breathe acting oh, and right. then it'll pay off. Yeah. So I just use that equation for everything. Like, you yeah. know, oh, now that I, uh, you know, I eventually went through a film school at NYU and it was like, I got out of there and it was like. Just direct as much as possible, direct oh. everything direct commercials, direct totally. movies direct you know television shows direct everything, direct funny uh, videos online, everything and I think it did I think it did help. I did get a lot of experience not all those projects you know you know led to great you know successes hmm. or was you know all received well somewhere
0: yeah, they can't they can't all be total hits, yeah,
1: but I I logged a lot of experience. Mm-hmm. And now and I and I don't I really don't think I would have been able to direct two episodes of The Deuce mm-hmm. or direct this movie The Disaster Artist mm-hmm. uh if I didn't have that experience behind me. Now that being said, it was um a combination of that experience and um seeking out Very good, smart, experienced producers Mm -hmm. that would uh, I would either feel um, obligated to um, give them my whole attention, yeah, like David Simon, you know, like if I'm gonna if he's gonna let me direct, I better step up and just be, you know, completely focused on on that and not do five things at once. Or with Seth Rogen, Mm -hmm. um, sometimes he and his. Producing partner James Weaver had to like actually just straight up say like it was it was pay attention. just short of like grabbing me by the ear and like pulling me and just saying you know pay attention yeah. like they were like James no no you cannot act in so and so movie during prep like you uh-huh. need to be here
0: yeah yeah
1: you're the director be here and do the prep. And it was a lesson I had to learn because I was used mm. to doing so many things at once that I that I could sort of delegate. But it was like uh, after a while, you kind of have to say, "Look," or I just came to the understanding. It's like, okay, look, there's only going to be so many things. You only have so much time left in this life.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You better just. And that means there's a limited number of projects that you're going to do. Right. You got to accept that. Why don't you just now find the things that you really care about that are worth yeah. giving your full attention and time to? Mm. And um, that's really what I learned on these these two projects, The Deuce and Disaster. Yeah,
0: you had to go through that period of just insane pumping out projects in order to reach this chapter, shall yeah. we
1: say. Yeah. So I think there is, you know, with anything, there is a period of, um, just doing as much as possible just to kind of yeah. get the, you know, basics down to, you know, figure out, like at every MFA program, you know, no matter what it is, and I've been to a lot of them, mm-hmm. you know, they're teaching you how to um, find your voice. And that yes. just comes from, you know, writing a thousand poems yeah. of, you know, reading a thousand poems of, you know, and, and, um, or you know watching you know m- you know thousands of movies and and being on sets and doing all that mm-hmm. until you get to the point where you're like okay I know this I'm familiar yeah. with this I'm comfortable with this just like I got with the acting too sure you know ah. and and um but then at mm. a certain point at least for me realizing okay
0: <laughs>
1: now I'm going to get more out of this if I'm still diligent, sure, but I give more attention to fewer things.
0: Yeah, it's depth as well as breadth.
1: Exactly, depth. more yeah. more depth rather than breadth.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I really I have like this list here of just like all of the many projects. It's like an oh, one gosh. endless thing. Um, and I want to ask: those are all backlog things we... <laughs> that I did a while ago. <laughs> oh, I know. And it's great that you you've turned this corner and are <laughs> learning this lesson for yourself because that's I go through things on a personal side note, where I just, I almost guilt trip myself into not being that ultra prolific, like I'm haunted by some like Mm. potential version of myself that's like way more productive and takes risks and is more like whole. Yeah. More like, and so I don't know how you've now reached, you've gone the opposite direction where you're now at a point where you're totally at peace with not, you know, packing your day full of
1: did PowerPoint have to PowerPoint kind of hit a wall. I mean, somebody just sent me a quote. Um, I'm probably mangling it, but it was by um, Edgar Allan Poe, and he was like, "Read a lot, write a lot, publish little." Hmm. And um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I'm okay with that now.
0: Yeah. You know. Whereas maybe your approach before was read a lot, write a lot, and publish a ton. Yeah. Oh,
1: so, yeah. you know, and, and part of it too was trying to, you know that I did learn from feedback, you need to learn, because I I also like, at an early stage, you know, I, you know, I I published a a book, Palo Alto, like, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, Mm -hmm. before that, I had been writing for, for years and years and years, but I wouldn't show anybody anything. Okay. And when I went back and looked at a lot of that stuff, it was not, it was not that great, partly just because it was, you know, I was younger, but. Also because I didn't let anybody read it. And it's like, as soon as I started going to, you know, uh, MFA programs, like, you know, and having my classmates read my stuff and give me feedback, it didn't even really matter, like Tarantino's speech, it didn't really matter all the time. What they said, just the fact that I knew people were going to read it that made game. me much more responsible about what I was doing and and made me much more aware of communicating, you know, yeah, that this was I was writing this to communicate to yeah. an audience. Totally. And, um, hmm. and so putting things out there, I think, was part of that.
0: OK, but the difference with acting. Because that's a major difference between acting and writing. Acting, you're pretty much always putting yourself out there. Barring reciting Shakespeare in front of a mirror for yourself, like acting, correct me if I'm wrong, is always, it's you, it's your own person, it's your own instrument.
1: And you're saying with writing, you can just write it and put it away and then maybe publish it later? Yeah, like
0: the acting itself seems like it has to be, you have to take that step of taking that risk of communicating with an audience out into the world. I mean,
1: yeah, I mean, we can argue. I mean, you could go. And I mean, I was just talking to Jonah Hill today, and he um, he was like, I love... Because he, he had done these series of um, recordings of um, prank calls. But he was like... Huh. <laughs> he's like... And he was so right. He's like, you know what? For me, it's an amazing way to get into character. Like even if I didn't record them, like hmm. just play my character and call up a Best Buy
0: wow. and
1: talk to that person in my character because they can't see me, they can't see that it's Jonah, and I'm just playing my character. What was this character say here? What? How would he? Be, and he's like, it's a great exercise in getting into character. So there's a form of acting where sure, you know you're practice. not really, you don't really have an okay. audience or that kind of thing. But yeah. I know what you're saying that. um
0: Generally speaking, hot.
1: like the the uh, unless you're like Andy Kaufman again too, where it's just like nobody's in on the joke but you and Mr. <laughs> yeah. X or something like that. You know yeah. what I mean? Like that's true. Uh, but generally, like as an actor, you need others, you yeah. know, and you you know, and, and you probably want an audience. Yeah,
0: yeah. In order to get better. Yeah. And do you you mentioned the. This idea of feedback. Do you read criticisms of your projects? Do you how much do you pay attention to that? Story?
1: My relationship with um, criticism has <laughs> always it's developed over the years. I mean, um, it was hard to read it when I was only an actor because mm. um, I was young and <laughs> sensitive, and sure, and and it. I think it. I think it really is. I still believe it's hard to criticize acting in film and television because Mm. anybody that works in those mediums knows it is so collaborative and somebody has, you know, directed you. Somebody has written a line. Somebody has edited the thing, generally speaking, you edited your performance and so it's like You know, it's almost like you can find, you know, a, uh, a, often a really great performance or a really bad version of that performance is just the way it's edited, you know. And totally. and and so after a while, when I was a younger actor, I just felt like ah, oh, I can't read this stuff. It's not it's not mm-hmm. helping
0: me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Then when I got, started getting into other things, and it was like oh, I was directing or writing. Mm-hmm. I started reading criticism again. And um, it was helpful, but then I sort of got into my head again and I was like, "Wow, well, <laughs> uh, I'm doing all these things. And I and I felt like, uh, whether I was right or wrong, I just felt like they're prejudiced against, like when I'm going to these other mm. fields, they're always, they're looking at this stuff as the actor, you know, writing a novel, as the right. actor directing something, yes. as the actor doing this. That's what you're
0: most well known for.
1: And... Um, and so then again, I stopped. But um, I've learned how to do it now. You know, I've I've learned from um, David Simon. You mm. know, who mm-hmm. comes from journalism and is is really true to uh, what he does and and um, who he is. And and that's that's the space that I'm in now too. And and to. Um, be able to now look at, and and maybe I feel, I don't know, maybe I feel more understood now or people, mm. you know, maybe it's, I've been doing a lot, you know, directing and not long enough now that people kind of accept me as a, a director um, or maybe it's just that I, you know, have had these great producers and I'm not just like out on my own doing my, mm. you know, f- following my own whims that, that, yeah. that I have. Great guidance, um, hmm. but I'm able to read the criticism more now, and yeah. and, and get and and listen to it, you know, okay. and and get and use it as real feedback, and, okay. and, and 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 again, as as we've been talking about this whole time, learn how my work is being received,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: learn how I'm communicating because that's, that's what I'm trying to do is communicate. So yeah. I so I do want to know how it's how it's um, landing on people.
0: Yeah. That's part of the storytelling process it has got to be an audience. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, We have to wrap up soon, but I wanted to ask one question. In a lot of your work, these short films you've, and these indie films you've directed and playing uh, Sean Penn's boyfriend's character in Milk, you are fascinated by queer artists, queer men. And I've always wondered why that is.
1: (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean... It's a, there's a lot of—I think there are a lot of reasons and different reasons behind each of those projects that involve, you know, um, these different characters that are—or uh, subjects that are, you know, queer-based or, you mm-hmm. know, these gay characters um, like the poet Hart Crane or the poet Al- Allen Ginsberg mm-hmm. or, you know, this project we did, Interior Leather Bar or— being in milk. Um, sometimes it w- the first thing that drew me to it was not really their um, you know queerness or orientation or anything. Mm-hmm. It was really just their art. You know, in the case of Hart Crane Don't or you. Allen Ginsberg, right. but hmm. their identities and their queer identities were inextricably bound up in that art mm-hmm. and. Um, and so that became an important aspect of their of their characters and personalities um something like interior leather bar started as sort of like uh, just interest in recreation, but then mm. you know pressing on it more learned that you know a all the all the uh uh History behind the making of cruising, and that yeah. it had been protested vehemently by mm-hmm. the, you know, the LGBT community at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, that that was an interesting history, but then that Friedkin had shot in the actual leather bars. Mm-hmm. In the, I think it came out in nineteen eighty, so he was shooting there in the late seventies, and then not long, and then. That even though there were, you know, there was a huge contingent of the LGBT community outside the those bars when they were filming protesting mm-hmm. that Friedkin said the people that frequented the leather bars were their own little faction mm. that were kind of outsiders at the time within the that community. And so they, the actual patrons of those bars were willing to mm-hmm. um, be in the movie. Right. And so, he just told them, or according to him, he said, "Just do what you guys do on any given night," mm-hmm. and, and then considering that HIV hit, you know, not long after that, right,
0: right,
1: those scenes in the leather bars suddenly became these incredible documents mm-hmm. of this lost time and place mm. or you know a, a something that disappeared yeah. you know 5 years after yeah
0: yeah yeah and so or was tainted in like a different way almost
1: well those ca- no those bars closed right. you know in 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 the wake to. of the HIV crisis mm. and so um i became very interested in all of that and then yeah. also um and then and then i became interested in like I had taken this class at NYU in the critical studies department, even though I was in the production mm. core track. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, uh, with this uh, professor Chris Strayer, I took two classes with with Professor Strayer: uh, queer cinema mm-hmm. and w- one quarter or semester, and um, uh, film and the body.
0: Oh, okay. And we
1: studied mm. how, mostly, how sex was portrayed in in film and I got hmm. really interested in the idea of using sex as a storytelling device that
0: mm-hmm. up
1: until really recently and you know uh, it was always just used to kind of say one thing these characters are attracted to each other or just for gratuitous purposes or right. that kind of thing hmm. and that it could because we are you know so uh pr- prurient, uh yes uh, totally <laughs> you know uh you know still in our ratings you know uh, uh those rating systems yeah yeah in our rating systems yeah. that you know so much violence is allowed and and totally. sex just isn't says a lot um grammar, I right? was very interested in exploring how to use sex as a storytelling device and so then I um Met up with this guy Travis Matthews, who was doing that very thing in his, mm. his movies, his narrative movies, but mm. using, sex and real sex as a storytelling device, so that just expanded that. But anyway, you know, and I just also and I and I think I even because I'm in that it's sort of a weird um, half narrative, half documentary experiment that Interior Leather Ooh. Bar, and I'm in it, and I and I kind of talk about it in there like. I am so bored of these normative...
0: Typical heteronormative.
1: Heteronormative stories totally. and heroes. And and yeah. so um, yeah. maybe that's another reason I'm just drawn to these, you know, yeah. um, stories that haven't had a chance to be, uh, you know, told no. in the same way that a right. hundred years of, you know... S- heteronormative stories have
0: absolutely yeah it seems like that's a pretty central part of your mission as an artist is don't make something that's conventional yeah. or, or follows go. the rules or just, there you go yeah that's probably this yeah is part of the I like apocalypse. it yeah like
1: I said my brother my new company Ramona films is mm-hmm. if we have one underlying um, you know mo it's it's to make unusual things or push the boundaries a little bit but still um, make, make our films for audiences.
0: Excellent, yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, do you have any last words of wisdom for listeners of this podcast, for backstage? Backstage,
1: um, I think we've, we've covered my big things. I always say like, <laughs> work hard. <laughs> you don't have to, you know, you can follow traditional paths but you can also do your own thing so that you're not beholden to the gatekeepers, you know, Mm -hmm. um, and um, find your own voice, but the new, older, hopefully (laughs) slightly wiser James will also say, find some balance. um, Because when I was a younger actor and younger filmmaker, I always thought, if I achieve this, if I get that award that I will be happy. Mm-hmm. And I'm here to say that it will not give you lasting happiness. Mm. Welcome, <laughs> welcome to the world. Nothing here will give you lasting happiness. You gotta find that another
0: way. <laughs> totally, totally. You just like wrap this up in a big, beautiful bow. That was perfect. There you go. <laughs> Thank you so much, James. This is awesome.
1: Thank you.
2: This episode is sponsored by A24, presenting The Disaster Artist, in theatres everywhere December 8th.
0: Be sure to like, rate and subscribe for more interviews from the front lines of the industry's awards races. In the Envelope is recorded at Lotus Productions and Hyperbolic Audio in New York City. Thanks, as always, to producer, editor, and all around podcast whiz, Jamie Muffett. You can follow him on Twitter at JamieMusicNYC. You can follow me, Jack Smart, on Twitter at Jack Thank you, of course, to the team at Backstage, the most trusted name in casting. That's Peter Rappaport, Mark Stinson, Francis Ramos, Rowan Alkatib, and especially the astounding Casey Howe. For more awards and industry coverage, head over to Backstage.com. Thanks for listening. Tune in next time for another glimpse in the envelope.